before I uh, begin to share what I believe the Lord has been orchestrating in my heart and mind over this past week, um, I first want to say thank you for being here. And uh, I think sometimes uh, it feels maybe as a congregant that the Lord is always challenging you and as, as you're staff, we're always challenging you, and sometimes you just, you know what, we need to every now and then just say, great job for being here. You know, it's a long weekend, there's lots of other places and things you could be doing, but on on behalf of myself and the staff who love and care for you, thank you for making God a priority on your long weekend, and I know that you will be blessed for being here. As I was reflecting earlier this week, this thought came to my mind, isn't it amazing how quick we can forget what a good thing is. How quickly we can forget what a good thing is. And I think there's two reasons. Number one, either we haven't done that or we haven't been to that place for a long time. Or secondly, because it's such a routine of our everyday lives that it becomes so familiar that it loses its impact. And we forget how beautiful something is. I had that experience earlier this month. I had the privilege of carving out a few hours to go turkey hunting. And uh, it was the opening day, and when you got four kids and a busy life, I, uh, most of my turkey hunting over the last five years has been in the afternoon. Uh, but I think your best chances are it means you've got to get up before the sun, and you've got to be sitting quietly in the bush. And I thought, you know what, I have had no luck attracting any young male turkeys to my calls over the five years. I'm going to do everything by the book this year. So I got up early, I went out to the Hooper's property just off the 115, and I'd set up my little camouflage tent and uh, was there before sunrise. And you know what? I had forgotten how beautiful the start of a day is. Just silence. And normally you'd hear a few birds start to chirp, but unfortunately because of a silly coyote, all the dogs started to bark in in the surrounding farms. And fortunately he was a wise coyote and he was too far from me, so he lives to see another day. And uh, But it was just amazing as he took off and the dogs settled down just to hear the start of a day and the birds and the rustling and the freshness of that morning. I hadn't been there for a while, so it was a beautiful thing to experience. Then I thought of growing up in Africa, in Kenya, and going to high school at Rift Valley Academy. And uh, literally, my bedroom window from grade 9 through grade 12 was right here, and pretty much about this distance from my window every morning, I woke up to just the whole Rift Valley. As far as I could see right and left and as far as I could see straight ahead. I had the whole Rift Valley that I got to wake up to every year until the time I graduated. And it was beautiful. And the sun right out in front of our dorm was this mountain called Longanot. And it was no longer an active volcano. And literally, every night, the sunset, it was as if the sun was going right in the cavity of the volcano. I mean, it was beautiful. People will spend thousands of dollars to travel to Kenya, to sit and see that sunset, and to take a picture. And you know what? For four years, it was just part of my everyday life. And it was beautiful. But I just took it for granted. And it wasn't until a couple of years after I graduated, I had the privilege of going back with a, a rugby team to do a sports missions trip to Kenya. And I went back there, and I saw that again. I thought, man, how quickly we forget how beautiful something is. And you know what? I think sometimes we do that with Jesus. We do that with our Savior. Either we've never been and know him, 
or he's just so familiar to us and we sing about him every week and he's involved in our Bible studies, but we've lost that sense of his awesomeness and his presence. And so this morning, we're just going to hopefully continue what Pastor Steve and the worship team and the Lord has orchestrated, just a, a focus back on Jesus and who he is, and let's not be quick to forget what a beautiful person Jesus is. So this morning, we're going to talk about law and order, a prescription for true righteousness. Now, righteousness at its most basic level is this, a state of being right before God. So it's a position, it's a standing that is credited, okay, not earned, credited to anyone when by faith embraces the person and work of Jesus. You see, for all of us, according to Ephesians 2, by our sinful nature and our natural tendency to want to follow the desires and the thoughts of our sinful nature are by nature objects of wrath because God is holy and he is just. But this morning I have good news for you that you no longer have to remain an object of God's wrath. And we're going to investigate that a little bit. We've sung in some songs this morning, even the last one we sung, truths about our Savior. Pastor Rick started a series last week, I Am Jesus. Truths about Jesus. And this morning we've sung that he's our Messiah. He's the name above all names. Our blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel, God with us. But there's a truth that is foundational and essential to our faith that I want to make sure we don't neglect or just put on the shelf. And that is this, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Now, I know, Pastor Steve, I was thinking, man, that's kind of an awkward sentence to try and fit into a course. The other ones work so good, right? But let's never forget Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And that's the key to us being able to be called righteous, to stand right before God and have a holy and just God okay with us. So we're going to talk a bit about that. And then also just want to touch at the beginning here about greatness. And I think if you look across our, our world and the influence on, on students and the pressure, I think if all of us are honest, honest when we wake up, none of us want to be a failure. We all strive to be accomplished or to aim towards greatness. And recently, as parents, we've been going through a series with Focus on the Family called Raising Truly Great Kids. And they use a model of a house to illustrate the key components, the building blocks that are necessary for building a biblical worldview in children and to aim them towards greatness, but greatness not according to the world standards. That's success. We want to aim them towards greatness, God's standards and God's principles. Now, if you're not a parent, you can still take that model and apply it to your own life. How do I as an individual aim towards greatness according to God's standards? And you know, greatness is, is mentioned many times in Scripture. If you go right to the book of Genesis, chapter 12, verse 2, the great I am said to Abraham that he will make him into a great nation. You go to the New Testament, Mark chapter 10, verse 43, when James and John were asking Jesus if they could sit on either side of them, how did Jesus respond? He said, whoever wants to become great must become your servant. And in today's text, we will look at a passage of Scripture where Jesus will instruct us very specifically how we can all have the privilege of being called great in the kingdom of heaven. But just like a house... Before we can even have that opportunity 
at being called great in the kingdom of heaven, we have to understand that the foundation of our lives has to be established by faith on the person and work of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, blessed Redeemer, the rescue for sinners. Last week, Pastor Rick mentioned that a name will often indicate a person's mission. If you look in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, look what it says about Jesus. She, being Mary, will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Each one of us has to get to that crucial point in life where we recognize that we are sinners deserving of God's wrath, and we can do nothing in and of ourselves to position us to be right with a holy and just God. We need to realize that we desperately need his grace in our lives. And when we do that, we humbly, not proudfully, not demanding, we humbly come before him, the holy and just God, the great I am, acknowledging that in ourselves we can do nothing, even though we try, and we bring ourselves to him and recognize our position as a sinner and ask him for his grace and mercy on our lives. And thankfully, the great I am loved us so much, recognized our inability to help ourselves to be in a position of right standing with him, intervened on our behalf and sent his son, Jesus, so that through him we might be saved. That is why it is so essential that we first establish a foundation of faith in Christ. He is the only one who can save us from ourselves and God's wrath. I love what it says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. Listen to the words. Once we were alienated from God, we were enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you and I by Christ's physical body through death to present us holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. We need to get to that point where we repent. We surrender the will and our desire to be the boss of our lives, and we willingly choose to follow him and his ways. And by the way, your ability to even do that is a gift from God. The faith to even believe that you need to establish your life on Jesus Christ is a gift from God. Listen to what God says in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one, none of us, could ever boast in terms of our position before a holy and righteous God. So when you think of building and you translate that over to your spiritual life, you have to understand the great I am is the architect. He is the builder. He is the supplier. And he maintains the quality control of your salvation. And this is the exact issue that Jesus was dealing with in the text we're going to look at today. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. And if you've been around church long, you know that this portion of scripture is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which goes through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And this reveals the, the heart of Jesus' teachings, the Sermon on the Mount. Prior to this occasion that we're going to look at today, Jesus had come from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. 
He had endured being led into the desert to be tempted. He is now back in Galilee and beginning his preaching ministry. Let's see what Matthew chapter 4, verse 17 says. Matthew 4, 17 says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. What does repent look like? I love the picture that is given to us in Luke chapter 18, 13, and 14. It's about a parable where Jesus is comparing a Pharisee to a tax collector. This is what repentance looks like. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Recognized his condition, called out to the only one who can help him, and said, have mercy on me. Jesus was beginning to preach, repent. Go down to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 23. He went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Then it goes into the Beatitudes. Then Jesus, in chapter 5, he sits down, and, and then in verse 13, chapter 5, he begins to challenge them about who they're supposed to be. His followers are supposed to be the salt of the earth. And then in verse 14, that they are to be the light of the world. And then we go to verse 17. And this is where we'll spend some time this morning. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus, the fulfillment of the law. What struck me as I started to study this portion of Scripture this week is those first three words. Do not think. Do not think. Now, I'm not saying as Christians, we just shut off our brains. Please do not misunderstand me. But I think we need to be very careful to use our own wisdom and intellect to determine and define who Jesus is and what his mission is. And if any of you were watching the news last night, we saw a prime example of that. We need to understand that we have the word of God. This is the revelation of the great I am to us. We need to stick close to it, we need to rely on it, and we need to depend on the Holy Spirit to help us understand it. Unfortunately, on the news yesterday, we saw this preacher in the States who had convinced many people that yesterday the world was going to come to an end, and at 6 o'clock, the rapture was going to happen. If he had stuck close to God's word, he would have read in Matthew 24, 36, no one knows about that day or hour. Can you believe it, how specific scripture is? Day or hour. It's almost like God knew people are going to determine when the hour is going to come. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. If that individual had stuck close, he would have read in Luke 12, 40, you must also be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Let us be careful how much we rely on our own wisdom and our own intellect in determining who Jesus is and his mission. Do not think that I have come. Here he is revealing himself as the Messiah from heavenly origin. He's claiming to be the Christ. And then we go into his mission. I have not come to abolish the law of prophets. I have come to fulfill them. What were the law and prophets Jesus was talking about? 
These were the specific laws and stipulations that God had established with his people in the Old Testament. You can find them in Genesis through Deuteronomy. It's often referred to as the Torah. These stipulations that God set up for how he will relate to his people and how they are supposed to relate to him formed the basis of what we know as the Old Covenant relationship. They were from God to guide his people, to keep them focused on studying the scriptures and maintain the proper patterns of worship at the temple. You could simply say the law and prophets were the scriptures. Now, today, we do not relate to God under the same structure as the people of the Old Testament. We are in what's called a new covenant relationship, we are, which has been established not through the law, but through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we celebrate what he has done for us in establishing this new covenant relationship when we share the Lord's table together. So the question that came to mind is, why would they be thinking then that possibly his mission was to come and abolish the law and the prophets? Well, you have to understand, his people in that time were living under an oppressive Roman regime. And then on top of it, there was misguided teachings and pressure from religious leaders much like we have today, specifically the Pharisees. If you look at the section that follows Matthew 5, 17 and 20, the fulfillment of the law, six different times till the end of chapter 5, Jesus says these words. You have heard it said, referring to the incorrect interpretation and application that the Pharisees were presenting and promoting to the people. And then after that statement, he says, but I tell you. They put their own spin on God's law and application of it. What God had intended for the good of his people, they had turned it into a burden. And they held the scriptures over the people's head like a heavy hammer. They were promoting a righteousness, the ability for someone to be right before a holy and just God simply through externally obeying the law without any heart transformation. They were building on a wrong, faulty foundation. So in light of this, you know what? It's understandable why perhaps some of God's people had a tendency to want to move away, wander away from these stipulations that God had established with them because it was a burden on them. But what I find interesting is God here is obviously giving them a very clear warning. And I think we have to take that into heart to ourselves today. Let us be careful not to wander or to rush too quickly away from God's revelation to us through his word. Jesus came to bring order and balance to the spiritual climate, the volatile spiritual climate of his time, and he wants us to remember that today. He highlights for us the importance of all of scripture. And we are his people. Therefore, we are to love and appreciate the full and complete word of God. So much so that look what he says in verse 18. I tell you the truth, unless heaven and earth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. The smallest letter in Hebrew looks like an apostrophe. And this, a stroke is an extension. It's a small marking on several Hebrew letters which identified them from similar ones. And so God is making the point that every part of Scripture is important. Every word of scripture is not to be ignored and will eventually be fulfilled. God's word is, is God-breathed. It's his revelation, the great I am, to us, and we need to make sure and remember that. 
He came instead to fulfill, not to abolish the law. He didn't disregard it and get rid of it. Instead, he came to fulfill the law. In Hebrew, the word fulfill literally means to raise up, to put in place, and to fill to the full. And uh, one of the commentaries that I was reading this week, I really liked his view of this. Uh, Frederick Bruner said, God raised Jesus to life. Jesus raises scripture, the law, to life. In Greek, in the book of Matthew, the word fulfill means total, complete, fullness. He did, Jesus, our Messiah, in fact, fulfill all of scripture, the whole Torah, all of God's law, not just for his people then, but for the whole world. He did not simply come to preach the law like the Pharisees did. He came to fulfill it through obedience. And in so doing, he was able to satisfy a holy and just God, the great I am. No one, no one but Jesus was able or qualified to fully and perfectly keep the law because he was sent by God 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin, we sung this this morning, to be sin for us. Has that become laissez-faire? Have you lost the impact of that? I have to admit, in the business of life, I think I've, I have lost the impact of that. It's just a routine. I know he did. He became sin for me. So I could, no, no, listen to what God says. God, the great I am, made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is incredible. He is the only one in history who not only knew the scriptures, but did it. As opposed to the Pharisees who only flaunted their knowledge of scripture, Jesus lived from it and for it. Let's take a look at what, in that same parable with the tax collectors, listen to the description of the Pharisees and this false righteousness that they were promoting. Luke 18, verse 9 says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about who? Himself. God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. We read earlier the response of the tax collector. He said, Lord, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. And Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you the truth, that this man, the one who acknowledged and humbly repented, rather than the other who promote this form of righteousness, that tax collector went home justified before God. Jesus came. He completely fulfilled the law. In so doing, established a new covenant by sacrificing himself, the perfect Lamb of God, on our behalf. So what does God, the great I am, expect from us in return for what he has done for us? Let's look at verse 19. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He gives us a warning. Take my word seriously. In fact, that's one of our five essentials here at Calvary Baptist Church. We take God's word seriously. And when we say seriously, what we are meaning is that we will intentionally make Bible application the priority. So much so that even in our Sunday school, we are moving towards a curriculum 
which really caught my attention, when it came across my desk, it just said, what if your children not only knew God, but could experience him? I'm not interested in a curriculum where my kids are simply going to have a head knowledge, but have no experiential relationship with Jesus Christ. So we take the Bible application here at Calvary Baptist Church seriously. I love this quote by Frederick Bruner. He says, make it your goal to be a personal translation of Scripture. The people who live around you, the people you go to school with, the people who you're at university with or work with in your neighborhood, they should be able to look at your life and from your life have some understanding of what the Word of God is all about. So what does he expect from us? He expects us to take his word seriously. And we see in, uh, in, at the bottom part of verse 19, there's two things that go with that. Those who will practice and those who will teach will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There's our answer. We are to obey his commands. As we wrap our lives around Jesus and obey his commands, the fulfillment of the law in who we completely trust, we can please God, the great I am. Under the new covenant, we do not simply throw out all the 613 commandments that are found in the Torah, the 10 commandments plus the 603 others. But at the same time, we are not obligated to keep the civil and religious form of those commands that his people had to under the old covenant relationship. Because now Jesus has fulfilled all of those laws on our behalf. So for instance, we don't bring animals. I didn't bring my turkey to sacrifice. In fact, we stuffed it, roasted it, and had a beautiful Christmas dinner in the spring of the year. And it was amazing. We don't bring animals to sacrifice to pardon us from our sins. Specific worship rituals, dietary laws that the people under the Old Covenant had to keep. We no longer keep the form, but we keep the spirit of the law. We do not just disregard them because all of those laws express for us something of the character of God. A value or a virtue that he thought was important for his people to know and as children of God those are still important and appropriate for us today. So yes, we do not follow the form but we follow and look for the character of God, the value, the virtue that he was wanting his people to understand and we still are obligated to maintain the spirit of the law. Christians who dismiss or think these are irrelevant, we deprive ourselves of teachings that conveyed truths about our wonderful God, the great I Am. So as image bearers of Christ and citizens of his kingdom, we are to reflect the moral, the ethical, and the spiritual character of God that is revealed in all of Scripture. How? By the power of Christ who lives in us, not on our own strength. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says, I, we, have been crucified with Christ and we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we are to practice. We are to apply God's word. And secondly, we're to teach it. We're to make disciples. If you want to be called, if I want to be called great in the kingdom of God, i got to practice and live out his word, and i got to teach others about it. Make disciples. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20 at the, at the end of the book, the famous words of Jesus that echo the same thing that he's echoing here about practicing and teaching others. Matthew chapter 28, 
starting in verse 19. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them, teach them, teach them to obey everything I have commanded. We must be committed to obeying God's word, not simply an outward, external obedience, but an obedience that comes from a heart of gratitude, understanding what Christ, who knew no sin, became on our behalf so that we can be righteous before God. There's a Hebrew term known as hesed. And uh, in a course I was just taking this last semester, this, this really resonated with my heart. And hesed is a Hebrew term which basically means that we have this internal loyalty, this love because of the grace of the covenant of the great I am on our lives. It's not an external obedience that we follow his word. It's got to come from this internal loyalty, a heart of gratitude, realizing what he's done for us. And a byproduct of that is obedience. He obtained our righteousness, something we could never accomplish on our own. Now he expects us to show him said, eternal loyalty, love for him out of a grateful heart. So you want to be called? I want to be called great in the kingdom of heaven? That's our answer. Practice my commands. Obey them. Keep them. Live them out. And teach others to do the same. Finally, in closing, gives us a second warning in verse 20. Listen to what it says. For I tell you that unless your righteousness, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What does surpassing or true righteousness look like? Well, he makes it very clear that don't follow the Pharisees if you want to have true righteousness, which is key to even entering the kingdom of heaven. So let's just take a quick look at the righteousness of the Pharisees compared to surpassing righteousness, which he says we need for the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees' righteousness was based on their own effort. Surpassing righteousness is based on Jesus. An earnest reliance on Christ. False righteousness is simply an external obedience. Surpassing righteousness involves having an internal heart transformation and an internal loyalty towards the great I am. False righteousness knows doctrine, but does not apply it. Surpassing righteousness knows doctrine and practices it, applies it and teaches it. False righteousness is a practice of religion to draw attention to oneself. We read about the Pharisees going in there, looking down on everybody. And then when they came to pray, it was all about I, 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 I. False righteousness is obedience to draw attention to oneself. Look what Jesus says just before our passage we read this morning in 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and what? Praise your Father in heaven. Surpassing righteousness comes from an internal loyalty towards a gracious God which leads us to obedience and through that obedience people's attention is drawn to our Father in heaven, not to us. What's the end result of false righteousness? The Bible says you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What's the result of surpassing righteousness? You will enter the kingdom of heaven 
and if we are obedient, even be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So I hope this morning through the worship and through God's word that for a second, hopefully you've taken some time to just pause and reflect about Jesus. The fulfillment of the law. That's a big deal. And it's a key, key, key principle, doctrine of truth that we need to hold on to and live by. You see, Jesus is the only one who can make sense of the law and our salvation, righteousness required before a holy and just God. Jesus bridges, Jesus raises up, Jesus fulfills the law on our behalf so that we, through him, can be righteous before a holy and just God and know that we, one day, will see him face to face and know that we will be free from blemish, free from any accusation. What does this text teach us about God? Just as the audiences that Jesus spoke to and the one that Matthew wrote to, we too learn that God is just and he knew that in and of ourselves we would never be able to fill, fulfill his requirements for righteousness. The fact that he sent his son to fulfill the law and prophets indicates to us how much Jesus loves you and how much he loves me. What we were unable to do God accomplished through His Son so that we might experience righteousness, a position right before God, and that we can enjoy a relationship with the great I Am. What does it teach us about ourselves and what is our response? This text reminds us that we cannot earn our salvation. There is no one and there never will be anyone who will do enough to ever earn righteousness apart from Jesus Christ. When that inner transformation by God's grace happens in us, we become citizens of his kingdom, of which Jesus is the king. And in response, we are not to ignore his word. He has expectations for our lives. And finally, the world that is around us. And what is our mission? The world we live in does not recognize Jesus as the king. In fact, they are building on every other foundation other than Jesus and thus will promote a life that is often contrary to what we know pleases God. But we have been called and through Jesus have the privilege of being in an alternative kingdom to the world we live in. And as we live out the king's desires, as we live out his commands and we practice them and we teach them through his power, we are constantly presenting to those around us an alternative kingdom. And as 1 Peter 2.9 says, we are calling to them to come out of darkness into this wonderful light. So the question that remains for us as individuals and as a church today is, are we living out Christ's correct interpretation of his word in such a way that we are strengthening and expanding his kingdom? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word this morning. The truth of it is awesome. The fact that each one of us are born into this world objects of your wrath because of our sinful nature. And in and of ourselves, we have no ability to not only just be a part of your kingdom, but no chance whatsoever of ever being called great. Thank you, God, the great I am, 
for intervening on our behalf by sending us your son so that all your requirements were fulfilled through your son, Jesus Christ. We are such a blessed and privileged people. And Lord, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you will convict us of your challenge to us this morning. You have given us two very clear warnings. We are to take your word seriously. We are to put it into practice, and we are to teach others. And we are to make sure that in no way do we have a false form of righteousness. We have to have a righteousness that surpasses anything we could ever do in our own effort. And that is only possible through Jesus, your son. And so, Lord, as we sing this song together as a declaration of our commitment, our hased, our internal loyalty to you, Jesus, our King, it is in you, Christ, alone that we stand and we will not follow any false testimony. God, help us, I pray today, to take your word seriously. In Jesus' name, amen. Ask you as we conclude, first of all, maybe you're here this morning and you don't know this Jesus, the man who came to become your righteousness. And maybe for the first time this morning, the news that you heard from God is that you are an object of God's wrath. I pray that this morning you will respond like the tax collector. Humbly come, confess with honesty, God have mercy on me, a sinner. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you. Don't delay. There'll be some pastors down here after the service. Please come and talk to us. You no longer have to be in that position before God. Through Jesus Christ, you can be in a whole new position of standing right before a holy and just God. Maybe you're here and you're building a foundation that is false. You're trying to have a form of righteousness based on your own efforts. God's word to you this morning is stop. Stop. You're wearing yourself out trying to, in your own effort, be right before God. Build and establish your life through faith on Jesus Christ. And finally, maybe you're here this morning in God's grace has reached out to you, and by faith, you have established that foundation of faith in Jesus. You have been credited with his righteousness, but are not taking his word seriously. Aim for greatness, and that requires putting into practice and teaching others to do the same. Father, thank you for this time this morning. Lord, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you will do your work. I pray no one will leave this building who you are working on their hearts. I pray that you will give them the strength. May they sense your power. May they come forward and talk with someone so that they could know leaving today that they are right before you because of Jesus. I pray that you'd break down in our assembly any false forms of righteousness that are creeping into your church. I pray, God, that we will recognize that in and of ourselves we are filthy rags. Lord, I pray that we will do nothing to please you in our own efforts, but only be controlled and led and empowered by your Spirit. Lord Jesus, help us to be a church that shows our city, our schools, the university, our neighborhood, that we take God's Word seriously from a heart of gratitude, and we will practice and we will apply, and we will be responsible to teach others. Help us, O oh Father, 
the great I am. I pray in the name of your Son, our righteousness, Jesus. Amen.